Good evening everyone. Let us worship God by singing to his praise in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 from verse 1 to verse 6. O come let us sing to the Lord. Come let us everyone a joyful noise make to the rock of our salvation. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we say amen to the words that we have just sung, words that proclaim your greatness, your majesty, your glory, your power. We acknowledge 
that you are the creator of heaven and earth the one who made all things by the word of your power you are the one who sustains creation who rules above creation who uses creation for his own purposes creation exists for you and manifest your glory you are the God who controls all things everything that happens happens according to your decree to your will to your plan nothing is outside of your will and what an incredible promise we read in scripture that all things happens for the well-being of your people we thank you Lord that good things as well as bad things happy occasions and difficult occasions they're all part of your plan to sanctify your people to make us more like Jesus to be made uh, spotless and guiltless in your presence we thank you that you are a God of mercy a God of grace a God who deals gently with his people you are the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep you are the one who carries us in his bosom the one who is understanding long-suffering and slow to wrath O Lord we have tasted and seen that you are good for we have sinned against you and we still sin against you and yet despite our great unfaithfulness you remain faithful you never leave us nor forsake us and nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ we proclaim this evening that Jesus your son is the only hope we have for this life and for eternity he is the only way the truth and the life the only redeemer of God's elect the only mediator the only name given among men by which we must be saved we proclaim you Lord Jesus to be the saviour of sinners we trust in you and you alone for our justification we trust in your righteousness imputed to us and our sins imputed to you our only hope to be saved is for you to be made sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in you we thank you Holy Spirit for if we believe in Jesus for if we have put our trust in Christ it's not because we are more spiritual than other people but you have awakened us you have called us effectually you have opened our eyes you have shown to us the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ our salvation belongs to the triune God Father, Son and Holy Spirit and it's because it belongs to you that it is certain and no one will ever be able to take it away from us not even our sins not even our rebellions and going astray you are always going to be our God and we're always going to be your people 
Help us, we pray, to behave as those who belong to the kingdom of God. Help us to keep your laws and to keep your statutes, to do your will and to live in a way that brings honor to you. Forgive us when we sin. Do not deal with us according to our failings and shortcomings. When we deserve wrath, we pray, O God, remember mercy. Watch over us now, we pray, in this time of worship. You know how easily we are distracted and taken by earthly things and worldly concern. Draw our heart and mind towards you. Point us to the things that are above, to the things that last forever. Take away from us everything that displeases you, everything that is not in accordance to your will. Cleanse us, we pray, in the blood of Jesus. Bless those unable to be with us. Remember them, we pray. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give them again the joy of gathering with your people in your presence. Bless us, O God. Do us good. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us sing again from Psalm 95. We'll sing from verse 7 to the end of the psalm. And if the first few verses are a call to worship God, uh, the second part of the psalm is a call to repentance and a call to uh, be faithful to God. Psalm 95 beginning at verse 7, For he is our God, the people we of his own pastures are, and of his hand the sheep today, if he his voice will hear.
Now let us read from God's word in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, we'll read the whole chapter together. This is the word of God. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses, and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children, and our livestock of thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, with Moses. Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the years of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the public reading of his own word. Let us sing now from Psalm 78. Psalm 78 from verse 40 to verse 43. This is an historical psalm that uh, um, recounts the work of God's people but especially the work of God towards his people how often did they him provoke within the wilderness and in the desert did him grieve with their rebelliousness
Now, would you please stand with me in Exodus chapter 17? And this evening, with God's help, we're going to look at the first seven verses of this chapter. Now, Israel has been redeemed. Israel, after a long time of slavery in Egypt, has been saved. The Lord Jehovah heard their cry. He came. He saved them. They're now free from slavery. And that deliverance is in scripture used as a type of the deliverance that Jesus has purchased for us. As Israel was redeemed uh, from slavery in Egypt, so we have been redeemed by Jesus from spiritual slavery, from the kingdom of darkness brought into the kingdom of light, from the family of the devil to the family of God. Israel were the slaves of Pharaoh, but they were called by God to be his servants, not Pharaoh's servants. The, ta- the, the time would take f- for Israel to travel from Egypt to the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his offspring, about 10, 11 days. But God had a different purpose, a different plan for Israel. And we find in Exodus, up to Deuteronomy, that Israel is in the wilderness. And again, the time that Israel spent in the wilderness is used by the New Testament to indicate the time that God's people spent in this world between their conversion and their going into glory or their glorious return of Jesus on earth. So there is many, there are many similarities between what the people of God experienced in the wilderness under Moses and what we experience in this world under Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us that the things that happen to the people of God happened for our instructions, for our edification. And I believe there is very much that we can learn from these first seven verses of, um, of Exodus chapter 17. The first thing I want you to notice are the difficulties of God's people. We mentioned they are in the wilderness. Now it is probably hard for you to imagine the wilderness. A place where there is little water or maybe little food. The people of God are in a dangerous place. In a desolate place. Far away from civilization. From even the little comfort that they had in Egypt. There is no certainty of food. No certainty of water. And they now are led by the Lord in the wilderness of sin. And uh, they move from there and they camp at Rephidim. And there at Rephidim there was water nearby. But it was controlled probably by the Amalekites that we find uh, dealing with Israel from verse 8 uh, in the same chapter. So the result of their journey is that now 
they are in a place and they have no access to water. Now they say that we can last many days without food. But you won't last long without water, especially in a hot place like the wilderness that was at that time the lot of God's people. You die very quickly. I think in a, in a matter of hours if you could um, dehydrate and, and die. So it's not easy. It's not an easy situation the people of God are in. They are tested. They are in a situation that no one would like. We're so used when we are thirsty to open the tap in our kitchen to have some water. Or when we are around to go into a Tesco and buy some water. That wasn't an option for them. And you can imagine the concern of a mother or a father unable to give water to their children when they are thirsty. Or how worried they were for their cattle, for their sheep and so on. Unable to provide the bare minimum for their own substance. They were in danger of death. That's how serious it was. Often we read this chapter and we blame Israel and we complain about their unfaithfulness and grumbling. The reality is that it takes much less to me to start grumbling. I don't lack water or food. I have plenty for myself, for my family. I have far more than I need. And yet if anything is missing, I start complaining straight away. But the reality is that God's people might find themselves in trouble sometimes. And as God's people, we experience time of wanting, times of um, when things are taken away from us, when there is danger, uncertainty, and difficulties. Now this is not the first time that the people of God are going through a difficult time since they left Egypt. You remember that after they left Egypt, the Egyptian army went after them. And they find themselves between the army coming against them and the Red Sea, having no way out. God delivered them by opening the Red Sea and by destroying the Egyptian army. Just after that, the people of God come to a point and there is no water to drink. There is water, but it's not good water. And so again, you see, this is not the first time that Israel is going through a, a moment of hardship. The water is bitter. And only because God intervenes miraculously, the water is drinkable. Then after that, there is no bread. There is no food. And God again intervenes and provides for them. And now again, lack of water. And then from verse 8, a war. What I'm trying to say is, this is not the first time the people of God are going to be in trouble, nor the last time. Their time in the wilderness, it's a time of hardship. It's a time of uncertainty. It's a time of danger. It's a time when God's providence is hard on them. And you know, sometimes we can cope with a trial. We can cope with a moment of hardship. But some of us, 
is one trial after the other. Some Christian people don't seem to have a moment of peace. Some of us just sail through life like, like, a, like a breeze, just wonderful. Very little problems. Other Christians is one test after another. Can be a physical problem, can be a mental problem, can be a family problem, a financial problem, a church problem. And that is what happens sometimes to God's people. There is hardship, there are serious problems. And these problems, like in the case here, are not the result of divine punishment or God's discipline. If you notice in verse 1, the people of God camped at Rephidim according to the commandment of the Lord. So this lack of water is not because they were unfaithful and disobedient and rebellious. This lack of water, this trial came to them not because they disobeyed God, but because they obeyed God. They did what was right, they did what God commanded them, and instead of being rewarded and provided for, they find themselves in trouble. That's strange. We often think, and we even read in the Bible, that if we want the blessing of God, we have to be faithful to God. And that's ordinarily the case. But sometimes God in His providence directs his people to do certain things and as they do certain things they find themselves going through hardship we suffer not just because we are poor Christians but sometimes even as faithful Christians we suffer suffering is not only the result of sin sometimes suffering is the purpose of God for his people at certain times. And this is the case here. God is testing his people. God is leading his people to a difficult experience, to a difficult moment. To test their hearts and to sanctify them, as he said uh, to them in Numbers. Through this, God was sanctifying his people. So don't be surprised if in your life you have trials and tribulations. Actually the Lord Jesus said that those who want to be faithful in this world we shall have tribulation. So the people of God are going through a difficult time. And although we might therefore excuse some of their behavior the people respond to the trials, the people respond to the hardship in the wrong way. So the response of God's people to God's providence is a guilty one, is a faulty one. So the first problem with their response is the lack of faith. <coughs> there is no water and that is a serious problem. What, is, what should be the response of God's people when we lack of something is to trust in God especially when God has been providing for them all the way through the wilderness they forgot how God opened the Red Sea how the chariots 
and the soldiers of Egypt died in the Red Sea. They forgot how God changed the bitter water of Mara in sweet and drinkable water. They have already forgotten the manna that is given to them previously. Now a new problem comes and instead of thinking and looking back to God's ways and God's provision, the people of God question God and doubt God and don't trust that God will provide for them. They don't believe, they, they lack of faith. And that lack of faith then becomes discontentment. They quarrel with God, they grumble against Moses. They complained. Things are not the way they would like them to be. And instead of asking for God's mercy, instead of pleading for God's help, they complain. They complain with God. Why are you doing this to us? Why are you brought us out of Egypt? They even forgot how terrible, how hard their time in Egypt was. They think that Egypt was better than the wilderness is. They're almost saying to God, We wish you never saved us from there. We wish you, you left us there. What a complaint. Instead of trusting in God and pleading with God, they grumble with God. But they don't stop there. They rebel against God. They rebel against God. Moses says to God, they are ready to stone me. They are ready to kill me. That's a rejection of Moses as the one God had given them, provided for them. It's a rejection of God's providence and God's leadership. Remember what God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. They are not your people, they are mine. And by thinking and, um, how can I say, and delighting in Egypt is a saying to God, we don't like your leadership. We don't like your authority. We don't like your sovereignty. We don't agree with your ways. You're not a good God to us. Pharaoh was better. So the trials is real and serious. But the response of God's people is wrong. And often, friends, I have to confess, when I am tested in God's providence, my response is very similar to the one of God's people here. As soon as a problem arises in my life, doubts, unbelief, as if God has never provided for me before, as if God had not the power to provide and to save me again. Complaints, discontentment, unhappiness, unhappy with God's providence. And how often, friends, I have missed the good old days. When I was free from God. The people are in trials. But their response, the response is sinful. Thirdly, the people don't stop with two rebellions and discontentment and unbelief. But they move an accusation 
against God. Now the word there translated quarrel has a kind of a legal implication. And you see what happens there, it's very much a legal setting. And the accusation that the people of God are moving against God are to be understood within the covenant that exists between God and his people. Now, you are our God, we are your people, our responsibility is to be loyal to you, to worship you, to be obedient to you, but your responsibility as God is to provide for us. And you're not. What we expect from our government, those in authority, is that they would enable us to live an orderly life and a, a life where we can have the things that we need for ourselves and our families. And when this doesn't happen, we complain with our government and we blame our government. And this is what's happening here. The people of God are saying to God, you are failing in your covenant responsibilities towards us. You are not providing for our needs as Pharaoh used to do. We had cucumbers and onions and garlic and leek. We had food and water there. But we don't have that here. You are not keeping your side of the covenant. They are accusing God of failing in his provision. And then they accuse God of care they says why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst now it's true that they, they say these words to Moses but Moses is the mediator between God and the people so when they say these things to Moses they are saying these things to the one Moses represents and look what they say you have taken us out of Egypt not to bless us, not because you love us, but you want to kill us. You don't really love us, God. You don't really care for us. We were just pawns in a proxy war between you and Pharaoh. You haven't saved us out of love for us. You don't really care about us. You don't mind if we die. If we and our children and our livestock die. You don't care about us. And then there is a third accusation. And that is. Is the Lord among us or not? And the promise. Often in, in covenants in scripture is that. God will be with his people. The covenant that God made with Abraham, one of the things that God promised was to be on the side of Abraham. To fight for him, to defend him, to deliver him, to make him great. God's active involvement with the well-being of Abraham. But in their behavior, in their words, they are questioning and accusing God of not being present. That's something that we can relate to. Wives complain about husband not being present. You give too much time to, to your job. You prefer your job to, to your wife. Or maybe mothers complain about fathers not being present. 
And that's the accusation. Because you don't care about us, because we're not important to you, you're not present. You're not with us. That's a serious accusation. What Israel is saying here is, God, you have broken the covenant. You have failed us. You have not been a faithful God. And, and this is a, not just a, something that comes out in a moment of hardship, but this is very official, friends. At least that's how God understands this. Because God then speaks to Moses and says, Pass on before the people. Usually the people or Moses are called to pass before God. God is not the judge here. God is the accused one. God is the criminal. It is God who is under accusation. It is God who is under trial. Not the people. So the move is as official as a spouse applying for divorce. The people are saying, because you failed us in your responsibility as God, we're going to look for another one. We might need for a different God. Maybe even the gods of Egypt that treated us better than you did. You see how serious you see why in, in Psalm 95 God speaks of this occasion, Masa and Meribah, as, a, as a, a time when the people of God tested God. Now we don't like when God tests us. We think somehow we don't deserve it. But imagine God's people testing God. How serious, how solemn. This is actually a key moment in the life of the people of God. They bring accusation against God. But fourthly, I want you to notice God's response to this accusation. God takes this accusation very very seriously and he is willing to be tested he is willing to be put under trial God's response to the people accusation is one of grace is one of mercy God is willing to be challenged by the people the very fact that God does not consume them it's an act of mercy. That God is willing to be examined by the elders of Israel. That is mercy. But I want especially to notice how God redeems his people from this situation. And God redeems his people through Christ. There are things here that points to Jesus. 
the first one we see Jesus here in, in the way Moses in, in, in something that looks like Moses the people brings complaint to Moses Moses is the mediator of the old covenant and he intercedes for the people before God you see He's the, he acts as a priest he, he prays for the people he speaks for them he represents the people before God and we know that Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. And if the mediation of Moses here is one of, I'm not saying sin, but not the best of intercession, we know that we have a better mediator whose intercession is always heard by God. We have someone that when we are in trouble, when we pour our soul before him, will take our case before God. Will hear us and intercedes for us. But we see Jesus not in, in a way like Moses. We also see Jesus before Moses. Verse 6. God says to Moses... I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. I will stand before you. So God is now before Moses. Not Moses before God. Remember God is the, the one who is accused. God is the criminal in the eyes of the people. God is the one under judgment. And God stands there on the rock. And then the Apostle Paul tells us that that rock that was smitten by Moses is Christ. So the one who stands accused before Moses is Jesus. So Jesus is like Moses, a mediator. And now Jesus is before Moses accused. Under, under condemnation. But also we see Jesus being struck by Moses. In verse 6 says, You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. The rock is Jesus. And the rock is smitten. God said to Moses to use the, the rod that he used for the ten plagues in Egypt. The rod was a symbol of divine judgment. Was a symbol of divine wrath against his enemies and the enemies of his people. So what's happening here, friends, the, 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 the side who broke the covenant is not God. The people broke the covenant. The people are guilty. The people failed. And yet the judgment doesn't come upon the people. The wrath of God is not poured upon the people. But the wrath of God is poured upon Jesus. Upon the rock. The rock is mitten, not the people. And, and you see, that's why... 
when Moses does the same later on, God is so hard on him. Because that act is an act of judgment. And when Moses smites the rock again, that is him taking things in his own hand and punishing God. Declaring God guilty in the eyes of the people. But you see, here is the gospel. What happens here, friends, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. We are by nature sinners. We are guilty before God. We sin all the time with our actions, with our words, with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our motivation. We sin all the time. We break the covenant all the time. We do deserve to be smitten by God and broken. But we don't get this. We don't get this from God. We get the water. We get the blessing. We get the favor. Because someone else takes our blame. Someone else takes our guilt. Someone else is punished for our sins. And that's the gospel. That is what Jesus did for us. He was made sin. And treated as if he were a sinner. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He is holy and righteous. He is guiltless. And yet... He is smitten, he is stricken by God for our sins, for our transgressions. That's the only ground for us to be saved. There is no other way for us to be reconciled with God, to be righteous with God. Someone has to pay for our sins. Someone has to pay the consequences and the penalty for our shortcomings and provocations. It's us or someone else. Now for those who trust in Jesus, Jesus takes that punishment upon himself. For those who do not receive Jesus, then they take their own judgment upon themselves. Our sins will be punished. The question is, by whom? Who is going to pay for my sin? Myself? Or my God? There is no other way around. There is no other way. God is a righteous God. Sometimes we present salvation, we present justification as God blinding his eyes, as God pretending there is no sin. But he cannot. God is a righteous God. God has to deal with our sins. And he does that in Christ. So he remains just. And yet he justifies sinners. That's why you are not going to hell if you are a Christian. That's why there is no more condemnation if you are in Christ. Because Jesus took that upon himself. For God turned himself, or God turned his wrath 
against his son. The cup of God's wrath was offered to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And he took that cup and he drank from it. Jesus took our place. That's what this passage points to. And if he took our place, it's also true that we took his place. So he took all the bad from us. And we got all the good. He took this, the beating of God's wrath and we got the living waters. We got a blessing. And it's not just that we've been forgiven by God and someone else has paid for our sins. But all the worthiness of Christ, all the privileges, all the rewards of Christ, He's willing to share it with us. And what belongs to Him is granted to us. Because He has been smitten on our behalf, then there is no more sin for God to be angry with us. There is no need for God to be against us. God is not pleased with us. I, I always remember the first time I, I read uh, a commentary from J.C. Ryle on the Gospel of Mark. It was part of my training for the ministry. And I, I never thought in those terms and it really touched my heart and it still does. You know when Jesus was baptized and what God said on that occasion is this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Of course it is. Jesus is sinless, perfect. He pleased the Father in, in every action, every thought, every word. Of course. But what is amazing, friends, is that now in Christ, that becomes true of us. If you are in Jesus, God sees you in Jesus. You are in Christ, the beloved of the Father. And despite all our sins and shortcomings, He is well pleased with us. I struggle almost to say these words. Because I ask myself, how can God be pleased with me? Not because of me. Because of Jesus. That's all we need, friends, to be at peace with God. All we need is Christ. So put your trust in Jesus. Call upon His name. Come to Him. Ask Him to be your Savior, to be your Redeemer, to be the one who stands before you and God. Ask Him to clothe you with His righteousness and to cleanse you from all sins. Let us pray. Gracious God, we confess our sins before you. We confess our need for Jesus. Our need for his intercession. Our need for his blood to be shed. For his righteousness to clothe us. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would be our Savior, our Redeemer, our great High Priest. Save us from all sins. We ask in your name. Amen.
Our final singing is Psalm 73, and we'll sing from verse 23 to the end. And these words are words of faith, of trust in, in God's care and salvation. Psalm 73, from verse 23 to the end. Nevertheless, continue in your Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand, and still upholdest me.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.